right after the book came out, one of the first calls I got from a CEO was from one of the founders of one of the big, I'm not going to say which one, tech companies that is is a poster child of disruption. I was really surprised. And I said to him when we sat down, I said, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised that you are so interested in this because I mean, you, you are, you are a poster child of disruption. And so, you know, one, one of the points of what we're teaching with these tools and techniques is how to disrupt yourself. So why, you know, you guys, you guys wrote the book on it before I did. And what he said to me was amazing. He said, the honest truth is what we did was get lucky. We had an idea and that idea changed the world and it disrupted an entire industry, but that's what we don't have another one right now. And, and, and he said, I know in my heart of hearts that there's now a thousand young guys and gals like me out there who are now looking at us, thinking how they could disrupt us. And if we don't figure out how to continue that disruption to our, and apply it to ourselves, we're going to end up you know, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not 10 years from now, you know, maybe not for another 50 years, but someday we're going to end up being the ones that, that are run over by the steamroller. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to this week's show. I'm flying solo today. Marcus is, is off doing other exciting things, but I have a very exciting guest to join me today. Whitney Johnson is the CEO and co-founder of Disruption Advisors. She's a top 10 business thinker, according to Thinkers 50 she founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clay Christensen, and she is the host of the popular Disrupt Yourself podcast, which is exactly why I've asked her to be on the show today, because we are all about deliberate disruption. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryce. Um, I'm so happy to be here. And I have to share with you a fun fact before we start, which sure. is, have you ever heard of Bryce Canyon in the United States? I have. Well, that was named after my second great-grandfather. No way. So fun fact, right? Right. That's amazing. So he w he was uh, one of the early explorers to the West, right? Or, That's that right. Correct? That's yeah. right. Yep. He was a, a shipbuilder and he, he was in Southern Utah and it was, it was named after him. So it's fun meeting a person who has the name Bryce. That is really cool. That is, you were the first descendant of, of, of the Bryce of Bryce Canyon that I have ever met. So it's a pleasure. Very cool. Well, Whitney, as, as interesting as, as genealogy is, though, I have to say, <laughs> I am I am so excited to have you on the show, as I said, because, you know, when, when I launched uh, Red Team Thinking, the company, back in, gosh, 2015, the, the, the tagline, our original tagline, was disrupt yourself before you become disrupted. And then, you know, fast forward several years later, I came across your wonderful work and you've been giving people this advice for even longer than that. So tell me, where did you 
come up with this idea of disrupting yourself? Where did this, where does, where did this, 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 this call to action come from? Well, I formerly, former life, I was an equity research analyst working on Wall Street. And this is back in the early 2000s. I am covering the emerging markets, telecom and media. Every single quarter, I am putting out my projections for how fast the wireless market's going to grow. And every quarter, they beat my projections. And I'm trying to figure <laughs> out what is happening. I come across the book, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen and Great realize, book. oh, that's what's happening. Wireless is disrupting wireline. I now have this explanatory mechanism for what's happening for me as an equity analyst. But then about a year later, I have gone to my boss and said, hey, I'd really like to do something new. And my boss says to me, we like you right where you are. <laughs> and at this point, I have now had this kernel, really, really kernel of an idea that this theory of disruption isn't just about products and services and companies and countries, it also applies to people. And so within about a year, I made the decision to disrupt myself and leave Wall Street. Now, what happens next is I am absolutely captivated by this theory of disruption. We've now moved to Boston. I've reached out to Clay Christensen um, and start to get to know him, work with him on a number of projects at our church. And he now wants to start a fund called the Disruptive Innovation Fund, brings me in as a founder with his son, Matt, to start this fund. We do this for about five years, but all along I have this thread, this, this script running in my head, disruption. It's not just about products, it's about people. And in 2012, I wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review titled Disrupt Yourself, applying this management theory to the individual. My thesis is that companies don't disrupt, people do, and that the fundamental unit of of change in, in an organization is the individual. So if you want to make progress, you've got to disrupt yourself. Couldn't agree more. And we'll put a link to that article in the show notes. That is, it, it's so interesting because I love that, that you began by doing this to yourself. And it's, it's such a powerful thing. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it's, it resonates with me because it, it, it's similar to, to my kind of origin story you know, I, I was a I was a business journalist for twenty years, and and a very successful one. And and after my first wait, book wait, came can out, you, can you just pause? And a very successful one. Who wrote this <laughs> amazing book that is completely marked up? I loved it. So just uh, well, you're not going to say you. how good it is, but it was amazing. Please go ahead, Bryce. <laughs> thank you. There's nothing that makes me happier than than seeing a copy of one of my books all marked up like that. Um. The but after that book came out, I I, I was having lunch with um, a, a gentleman who uh, he was actually the 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 head of, he owned all the Dale Carnegie franchises in Michigan. Mm. I mean, he was a friend of Alan's. Um, speaking of that book, and and he and he reached out to me, and he asked me. He said, "Why why are you a, a, still a journalist?" And and I said. I mean, what do you mean? Why am I still a journalist? I mean, it's what I've been, I mean, I've been working at my craft for, for 20 years. I'm, you know, getting close to the top of my game here. You know, I was, I was, uh, at the time I was having discussions with the wall street journal about moving over there and, and, and stuff. And, uh, and he said to me, no offense to journalists out there, but he said, it's probably the, the, the least valuable thing you could do with your time. Hmm. And, and I said, well, I, you know, look, I, I, I know that, 
I, when I became a journalist, I knew I wasn't going to make a lot of money doing it. That's not why I did, he did. He said, no, I'm not talking about for you, mm. though that's true too. He said, you have got all this knowledge that you've accumulated through your career as a, as a business journalist. And, and it would be much more valuable to share it more directly with people. Mm. And that, and, and, and I, you know, it, my, my initial reaction, which I'm sure that you were dealing with in your situation was that, but I'm already in my, in my milieu, I'm really successful. So like, am I really going to blow that up and, and just walk away from it? But at the end of the day, I realized that he was right. And I did. And it's, it's, it's both a terrifying and liberating feeling mm -hmm. when you, when you do something like that, as I'm sure you experienced as well. Yeah. Right. So what's so interesting is that there, there is that question of like, why would you disrupt yourself? As you said, you're absolutely at the top of your game and people look at you like you have completely lost your mind. And, and the analysis that I did, and I don't know if you're familiar with jobs to be done theory, but whenever you take on a job, you're hiring that job to do a functional and an emotional job. And from the standpoint of someone who doesn't know us, they look at it and they say, Bryce, you're, you're, this job is doing the functional job. It's putting food on the table, maybe barely, but it's putting food on the table. But the question then becomes is, is it doing the emotional job? And I think what this, this, this colleague was asking you, and, and almost always when a person does make that decision to disrupt themselves and it doesn't quite make sense, the functional job is being done. But there's an emotional job that says, I feel like there's more for me to do on this planet and I won't be able to do it if I stay here. So I'm going to have to disrupt myself. I'm going to have to move down the graph paper sort of on that y-axis of success, that graph paper of existence down a few notches in order for me to do what I need to do in the future, knowing that the slope of my line will be steeper in the future. So in the long run, it will have made sense to do what right now seems like a fool, a fool's errand. Well, it's so interesting that you say that, Whitney, because that's exactly what it came down to for me. I, when I reflected on this and when I sat and, and, uh, and started talking to my wife about this conversation, what I realized is that I had, I had long since ceased to enjoy journalism. Um, I had loved it when I started, but by this was, this was, uh, 2013 by 2013, the, the major newspapers in this country were shadows of their former selves. Um, you know, uh, I had my, I had made my career on doing in-depth, deep analytical pieces where you embedded in companies for, you know, weeks at a time and, and kind of, did these very thoughtful, long form pieces and everything had shifted to who can post something on Twitter before anyone else, whether it's right or wrong, we don't care. Just get mm -hmm. something on the web. I mean, mm -hmm. the last couple of years I was in, in, in newspapers, the, the, the shout that you heard across the newsroom every 10 to 20 minutes was just get something on the web and figure wow. it out later. Wow. And that wasn't what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. at an emotional level, it wasn't doing it for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, the thing that I said to, to this guy, though, was like, but why would anyone pay me to, to you know, I, I'm a journalist. I, I've never led a company and stuff. Why would anyone pay me to come and, and talk to them about leadership and stuff? And he said, you've been inside of hundreds of companies. You know, hundreds of CEOs. He said, do you know how many CEOs wish that they could have those insights and stuff? And, and mm -hmm. I never thought about it that way. And it turned out he was right. Um, but I, I think that's so important. And I think Whitney, I think that, that that's what happened to a lot of people mm -hmm. during COVID. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's part mm-hmm. of what led to the great resignation, I think, mm-hmm. which is really, as we've talked about on the show before, less a great resignation than a great migration, which mm-hmm. is, you know, people leaving what they were doing to do something else. And I think that that what is at the base of it is that COVID gave people a, a chance to pause and and recognize in many cases that what they were doing wasn't what they wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they decided to disrupt themselves. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I I I also I I actually described it as the great aspiration and I I think that I mean there there have been so many monikers for it. Um but just to put a, an an additional nuance into what you just described. I I do think that during the pandemic, um, people may have been at at what I call the top of their S curve, and and in this place of I, you know, I, I love being master of all that I survey, but I feel like there's something more for me to do. But sometimes we're reluctant to do it. It feels pretty terrifying, like you said, to do something new. And what the pandemic taught us is that we were far more resilient than we thought we were. And mm-hmm. in addition to pausing, we found ourselves really flexing that muscle of doing new things because the older you get, you can't insulate yourself from ever doing something new. We realized, oh, I can do things differently. I can configure my life differently. I can do this. And so when the world wanted us to go back to doing exactly what we were doing before, we said, no, actually, I'm more capable than I thought. There's more for me than I thought. I aspire to more. And if I can't do that here, I will have to go find another way to do it because I, I, I want more for my life. And from that came the disruption as well. It's probably the great migration as well, but I do think there are lots of contributing factors to, in the end, why people have chosen to disrupt themselves. I, I agree. And I think, I think your analysis is spot on. And you know, it's funny because, you know, I'll go back to Alan, you know, one of the, one of the principles that I've learned from Alan is, is, is never miss the opportunity of a crisis. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, this is what he did at, at, at Boeing when 9-11 happened. This is what he did at Ford during the global financial crisis is most people, most people are paralyzed by crisis or they mm-hmm. see them as, you know, as, as an existential threat and, and it makes them, it makes them kind of succumb to fear. But in both of those cases, Alan didn't didn't diminish the threat that was posed by those mm-hmm. things because they were existential threats to both companies. But he saw them as opportunities to disrupt those organizations in a way that wasn't possible under under normal operating times. And that's one of the many things that I learned from him that I've internalized. And and I think that it applies to our personal lives as well. When you have a crisis like the one that we all have been living through for the past three years, that's an opportunity to disrupt yourself um, and to, or at least have, yeah. a, have a reflective moment and think about, and it, and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean and, and nor should it that you, you, you go off and join the circus, but you know, it's, <laughs> uh, <you> can. <laughs> you can, you can, if that's, yeah. if that's your mm-hmm. calling mm-hmm. and it, but, but even just rethinking how you do things. I mean, I know again, I'll, I'll, in my own situation, before COVID, I, I spent half my life on airplanes, mm-hmm. and you know, and and people would ask me, "How do you de- how do you cope with that?" And I would say, "I love it. I love I love going all over the world and in all this." And I and I did until I stopped, right. and then I had this moment. You know, I, I'm fortunate enough to live right on the on the Pacific Ocean out here, where I was sitting on my deck and watching some whales go by and stuff. And I I had this moment, like people in New Delhi, who said this that they were stunned to see that 
you could see the Himalayas from Delhi when the smog mm -hmm. cleared. I had this moment of realizing that my whole life had been one endless, you know, jet lag, you know, for a decade mm -hmm. and that I actually could function better, think more clearly when I wasn't traveling at that extent. So when, when things started getting back to, I'm not normal because I, that's not going to happen, but new normal, I've consciously thought about how can I structure what I do in a way that doesn't require me to travel near as mm -hmm. much as I did before. So I think it's not, it doesn't have to be as radical as, as blowing up your career. Right. But it, it is about rethinking aspects of what you're doing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Bryce, because one of the things, um, you know, when I wrote um, Disrupt Yourself, so I, I eventually wrote a book and I had a lot of people say to me, you know, this book is for people who want to change their career. And I, I remember on a number of occasions, uh, corporations would say, we don't want you to come speak to us because if you do, everybody's going to quit their job. And I'm, right, like, right. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, I mean, that is a possibility. And I did have someone come up and say to me, I quit my job because of your book. But the, the idea of it was is that when you 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 peak in your growth, um, you get to the top of your S curve in your growth, and there's no more headroom. You do need to disrupt yourself. Um, but I over time have really refined that as is this notion of there are big D disruptions where you change a job or the pandemic disrupts you. But as you think about really making progress, there are these little D disruptions, this deliberate process of self-innovation, these decisions that you make on a daily basis to step back from who you are into who you can be. And it might be something as simple as, you know, my child just came in to talk to me and I really wasn't paying attention to them because I was focused on the work that I was doing. I want to stop. I want to reset. I want to say, hey, you know what? I wasn't focused. Let's do a do-over. Can you talk to me again about what you're doing? And that is a little de-disruption that allows you to make progress on the, the, along the S-curve that is your life um, and, and of you being the human being that you want to be. So I do think as you and I have been talking about these big de-disruptions, whether we are agentically affecting them or they're happening to us, but in either case, over time, the way that we're going to make progress as human beings, it's going to be through those little d micro disruptions um, on a daily basis. Oh, I could not agree more, Whitney. And this goes back to Aristotle: the the unexamined life is not worth living. Ooh, so good. And um, you know, it's 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 was that Aristotle or Socrates? You know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm, but it's a great quote. We it know up. it's a real yeah. quote. <laughs> yes, it is a real quote. I get. I, well, I, I I I will look that up during the break, but um. You know, I, it, it's it's one of the principles that that I live by, and, and I think it gets right to this little d disruption you're talking about, um, which is that that you have to continually examine yourself, and you have to 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 one of the things that that, that we do, Marcus and I, as an organization, for instance, is every quarter we have a meeting where we go we we create a list of everything we're doing as an organization, and we ask ourselves if we were starting over right now, would we still do this? Oh, so good. So and we'll good. cross stuff out. If we, if, mm -hmm. if we have hesitation, we'll cross stuff out. And then, we'll, and then the question becomes, well, why would you keep doing it then? And it's, you know, it's, it's something that I encourage everybody to do. And you can yeah. do it in your personal life. I too. am writing that down right now, Bryce. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, and it's, it's, but these are simple things, right? Yeah, you know, but absolutely. it comes down to these little D disruptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the going back to, to the tagline I mentioned early on is in the world we live in today, 
what we call that, what we, you know, borrowing this term from the U.S. military, this VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And we add, as some academics have begun to do an H to the end for hyperconnectivity. Mm. In this world that we live in and operate in today, all of us, if you don't disrupt yourself, someone else will do it for you. Totally. Totally. It's the only way through. Literally the only way, the only way for us to manage through big D disruptions that are from, coming from external forces is if we are willing on a daily, on a second by second basis, willing to disrupt ourselves. It is the only way through. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think that, I think that really good leaders recognize this. You know, I, I'll tell you, tell you a story that illustrated that for me. When my second book, Red Teaming, came out, and we were doing the marketing strategy for it. But my, the marketing team at Random House was, we, we had a conversation about whether we should make Silicon Valley a focus of, of our marketing efforts. And I said, well, you know, I don't really think so because, you know, I mean, this is the land of innovators and disruptors and stuff. And, you know, I think this this book's going to be more of interest to, you know, the the Fords of the world and stuff, you know, older companies that are that are struggling to kind of get into this new, this, you know, 21st century ways of working, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was really surprised because right after the book came out, one of the first calls I got from a CEO was from one of the founders of one of the big, I'm not going to say which one, tech companies that is is a poster child of disruption. And and he asked if I if I would come and sit with him and, and talk to him. And I was really surprised. And I said to him when we sat down, I said, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised that you are so interested in this because I mean, you, you are, you are a poster child of disruption. And so, you know, one, one of the points of what we're teaching with these tools and techniques is how to disrupt yourself. So why, you know, you guys, you guys wrote the book on it before I did. And what he said to me was amazing. He said, he said, the honest truth is what we did was get lucky. We had an idea and that idea changed the world and it disrupted an entire industry, but that's what, we don't have another one right now. And, and, and he said, I know in my heart of hearts that there's now a thousand young guys and gals like me out there who are now looking at us thinking how they could disrupt us. And if we don't figure out how to continue that disruption to our, and apply it to ourselves, we're going to end up, you know, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not 10 years from now, you know, maybe not for another 50 years, but someday we're going to end up being the ones that, that are run over by the steamroller. And it's interesting because he said that before, Bezos made his famous comment that if that someday, you know, if Amazon doesn't continue to challenge itself, that someday there's going to be another Amazon that just plows through Amazon. And, and I think that that's really true. And so no one is immune from this, right? And I think that's an important realization. I think that's an important realization that, that no matter how, where you're at in your journey, and again, I, I'm going to come back because because you, you mentioned during the introduction that you're going to be talking with Alan soon, which is so exciting. So this is one of the things that I that I learned from Alan too. And, and you ask him about this is you know one of his key principles is that you're always working on the better plan. So you're working towards the plan, 
but simultaneously you're always working on the better plan. Yeah. And that's about disrupting yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's about not stopping the process of disruption. That's right. Always. I, I love that. Always working toward the better plan. And you reminded me to, um, I have an Alan story for you and I think it actually, sure. um, coincides nicely with this because why, why, why do we sometimes hesitate to disrupt ourselves is, is the question. Um, and, and why is it so important that we are sometimes disrupted? Because if you think about, you know, a, a wholesale or massive disruption, it's going to disrupt us probably more than we would disrupt ourselves because we very much like the status quo. And so that plateau that we're on could easily become a precipice. But I do think that it's a lot easier for us to disrupt ourselves when we're willing to fail. And I remember having a conversation with Alan. I had interviewed him for my second book called Build an A-Team and, and asked him the question about failure. <laughs> I still remember it, this actually went several times. I said, so how do you think about failure? He said, I don't. But what, what do you mean? Like you don't. So I, you know, I, I, I think, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to circle and I'm going to try to land the plane again and ask him, so how do you think about failure? <laughs> and he said, no, no, I don't. And so I finally thought, all right, I'm going to ask him one more time. No, really, really like what, what do you do when you fail? And he said to me, Whitney, I don't think about it that way. I just think about when things don't work and you know, he has this famous saying from his working together principles, reds are gems. When something doesn't yep. work, it's data, it's information, and it helps me understand how to do things better. And I think that shows a very high level of resilience, but it also goes to this idea of disruption is if we are afraid of failing, meaning because failure is actually not the problem. It's the shame that we attach to failure that becomes the problem. So shame limits disruption. It's not failure. But if we can just say, this isn't a problem. I mean, I'm just learning something. It didn't work. I've got data and there's no shame attached to it. Then we can become experts at personal disruption because it's just, I'm iterating, I'm learning I got data. Now I'm going to make progress. And so I think that was an important lesson for me. I have not mastered it. He is a master at the craft of not attaching shame to when things don't work. But I do think that's an important component to the discussion that we're having of if I want to disrupt myself, I've got to, I've got to wrestle the shame that I feel around failure to the ground because it's going to hold me back if I don't. So true, Whitney. So true. And such an important learning and you're absolutely right. I mean, I've heard I've heard him say the same thing. And it's, you know, it it's something that's so fundamental because we have this this unhealthy obsession with success. Mm -hmm. And the reason I call it an unhealthy obsession is because, you know, if 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 you can't fail, then you can't innovate. You can't think differently. The the Israeli uh Red version of red teaming that their their director of military intelligence developed, Ipsha Mistabra. I was talking with one of the one of the officers who is who who was a member of it, and he said, "You know what the secret to our success is? He said the secret to our success of our team is is that our performance reviews are not based on how often we're right and the rest of the organization is wrong. Mm -hmm. They're based on 
how deep are the discussions that we foster and trigger in the rest of the organization? Oh, that's so because bad. these are these are people whose job is to be the contrarians in the room. And he said, if you if we have to be right, then we're always going to play it safe. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that 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 it, businesses need to learn too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're you know if you're a leader and you can't fail, if 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 failure is going to lead to you you know, dropping a rung on the ladder or getting someone else, you know, stepping over you, then that's an organization that's never going to innovate. And, you know, you look at, um, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this with a lot in the past week, because this is, this is the week that, that Apple uh, launched Vision Pro and, or last, last week was the week that Apple launched Vision Pro. And there's, there's so many mocking you know, news stories out there by people who don't really get what they're trying to do, first of all. But second of all, you know, people are pointing out, oh, this is what's wrong with this. This is what's wrong with it. Apple's never launched a perfect product. The Macintosh barely worked when Steve Jobs unveiled it, you know, back in 1984. It barely booted up. They weren't sure it was even going to boot up during the press conference. And the reason that Apple has been so successful in part is because they're willing to plant a flag farther out than others, recognizing that it's not perfect yet, Mm -hmm. but then to iterate on that and and pull themselves to the point where it is. Mm. And, you know, it's, you know, every time, you know, it's like when they launched the Apple card, I was working with a client who was so dismissive. They said, what is it? What is it? Why does the world need another credit card? All it is, is another credit card. And I said to this executive, I said, all it is now is another credit card, but I guarantee you in five years, it won't just be another credit card. And, you know, and you'll see over time that they add features to it and they figure out what worked and what didn't work and how to, how to, how, you know, I mean, these are conducting test and learn experiments in real life. Yeah. And that's why they are such a disruptive company. Yeah. I just had this little mini aha as you were talking is that um, part of that willingness to, when you're disrupting yourself um, as a person or as a company, what are you doing? You're making a decision to become a silly little thing, right? It's a toy. It's under the radar. No one thinks it makes any sense. Um, and, and what that means is when you're a silly little thing that people are going to make fun of you. And so there's the failure piece, but I think there's also another piece where you're able to not listen. You, you, you take feedback, right? You have to be willing to see what the, the market's telling you, but you also have to be willing to not insulate yourself from the the mocking comments that people make and be okay with that. I actually had, I remember I was talking to Susan Cain years ago and um, about this and uh, it's probably like five years ago on my podcast. And we both had this epiphany of, I think introverts might make better disruptors. And the reason being is that they're less focused on what other people are saying and thinking than extroverts are. And so that makes it more possible for like you described, Bryce, to go out and plant the flag and be willing to just do it. And it's not going to be perfect. And there's some resilience to it for you personally, but also just filter out the people that are just making fun of you because that makes them feel better about themselves and just go do the work and, and move forward. 
Wow. And you just described Steve Jobs. You just described Bill Gates. You just described, you know, all these these icons of the tech industry, mm-hmm. you know, to a T. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, I remember as a tech journalist covering covering Microsoft back in the 90s. I mean, people were dismayed at, at Bill Gates lack of care for how he was perceived um, in interviews and stuff and his lack of polish. But maybe that's, you know, to your point, that's the exact same qualities that let you do things that, that sometimes expose you to ridicule in the marketplace and, and, and elsewhere. But, you know, and, 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 and I think that's an important thing that, that you've hit on there because it applies to our personal lives too. Mm-hmm. We have to be willing to, and I had, you know, you, you talked about this, I had so many people when I quit my job as a journalist, and I'm sure you had the same thing when you left Wall Street, mm-hmm. calling me and saying, what are you doing? Right. Well, I had a former editor call me up and say, what are you doing? You were, you, you, you're at the pinnacle. Why would you walk away? Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and he told me, he's like, I guarantee he's like, you're going to regret this. You're going to be coming back in, in, you know, a couple of years wishing you could get your old job back and stuff. And I said, well, we'll see. Maybe yeah. I will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. I I had, <laughs> you clearly did not regret it. It's funny. Cause I had a boss say the same thing to me. You're going to regret this. You know, it occurred to me, I, you said this earlier and I, I, I think, uh, you know, this idea of the, the person at Dale Carnegie, I, you know, you, you owe him so much. I do. Um, um, but Rob, Ni- Ralph Nichols for, for, for the record. All right. <laughs> yes. For the record, shout out to Ralph Nichols. Um, but yes. you, you said something or he said something to you that, in my brain went, oh yeah, you actually have a PhD in organizational behavior or theory or whatever you want to describe it. But all that reporting that you had done had effectively given you a PhD. Um, Maybe we need to start lobbying for a university to give you an honorary PhD (laughs) so we can make an honest man of you. But I, I do think that you do, in fact, you have done the work that a PhD person, you know, of a dissertation. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I love this idea of disrupting yourself and I love what we're talking about, about having the courage to, to not care what people think. Yeah. You totally, wait, you totally deflected that compliment, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> way to well, deflect you. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take okay. it. Thank you. Whitney. Right. Okay, now let's take a short break. When we get back, let's dive in to how do you go about disrupting yourself? Stay tuned. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. Wow, what an amazing conversation. So Whitney, we've talked a lot uh, in the first half of the show about why we need to disrupt ourselves. Mm -hmm. Let's talk now about how do we disrupt ourselves? What do you tell people when they come to you and say, great, I get it. What do I do? I start by explaining what I call the S curve. 
Um, you may have noticed now that I like applying management theory to the individual. And another theory that I did that with was called the S-curve that was popularized by Everett Rogers back in the 1960s. And he used the S-curve. And we actually used it at the Disruptive Innovation Fund to look at how quickly is a product going to be adopted? How do groups change over time? And I had the insight, the aha, that you could also use the S-curve to help us understand how individuals change, how we learn and how we grow. And the reason that I explain the S-curve to people is because when you're disrupting yourself, you are probably going to be in the process of changing and growing. And what it does is it helps you understand what that growth um, is going to look like and especially what it's going to feel like. So very simply, there are three major phases. There's the launch point, the sweet spot, the mastery. And whenever you start something new, your brain has a hypothesis. All right, I'm going to do this new thing. I'm going to disrupt myself. Um, I'm at the launch point of the curve, that flat part, and I'm going to make lots of predictions, most of which are going to be inaccurate. So dopamine, the chemical messenger of delight is going to drop. So the experience that I will have is even though it's thrilling that I'm here, I'm also going to feel terrified and overwhelmed, discouraged, maybe impatient, possibly like an imposter. And so growth is happening, but it's not apparent. It feels slow. It feels like a slog, which makes it hard to start something new. That's the launch point of the curve. And that helps people say, okay, I've just disrupted myself. I've done this new thing. I'm feeling terribly uncomfortable. Oh, situation normal. This is exactly how I'm supposed to feel. I'm at the launch point of the curve. The second part is that you get that steep, sleek back of the curve. That's the sweet spot. And this is the place where you hit that tipping point that Malcolm Gladwell popularized. Growth's not only fast, it feels fast. You have your, your predictive model. The, those predictions are increasingly accurate. And so you have these emotional upside surprises, just like in the stock market, when companies beat expectations, it's the same thing. You beat expectations. And so the dopamine spikes. And this is why once you actually start with something, it's easy to keep going. So that's the part that with disruption, everybody loves that place. It's the, the flow place. The other place, and you and I have been actually talking a lot about this throughout the entire conversation, is that place of mastery when you get to the top of that curve where you were really good at what you're doing. You're, you're a master at it. And you look around and think, I, I'm, I'm great at this. In fact, I love the people I work with. I love the industry that I'm in, but I feel like I can no longer keep doing this. So now people have this understanding of, it's not that I don't like where I am. It's just that my brain actually needs more dopamine. I have to continue to learn. Learning is the oxygen of human growth. And if I stay here, this plateau will become a precipice. I will die inside just a little bit. And so I'm going to make the decision to disrupt myself, to do something new that either pushes me back into the sweet spot of this curve, or I'm going to jump to an entirely new curve, going to disrupt myself and do something new and start that growth cycle all over again. So the how is as a starting point to give people a container or a map of what growth looks like so that they can normalize the experiences that they're having. So I love that, Whitney, because you 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 have really surfaced something that I think is one of the, the biggest barriers to success, certainly one of the biggest barriers to to success in new areas, to innovation, and there and therefore to disrupting yourself. What keeps most people from doing it is that is that first downward dip that you talk about, because it is hard. 
and, and, and slog is exactly the term that I would use for it. And I think a lot of people, you know, it's funny when, when I quit my job as a journalist, you know, I, at 20 years interviewing, you know, CEOs and business leaders around the world, I met a lot of very successful people, a lot of billionaires and stuff. And, you know, you, you ask people, what's the, what's the secret of your success? And, and, you know, it's hard work and, and it's so easy to dismiss that, Yeah. you know, when you haven't been through that, it's so easy to say, well, of course, you know, you're going to say hard work, you know, and stuff like this, but that's really, <laughs> but it really is the secret to success because it is hard work to plow through that trough of, of, yes. you know, not getting it right, testing and learning, mm -hmm. experimenting, trial and error, what, whatever you have, you know, and yet nobody that I'm aware of mm -hmm. comes to success without going through that. Mm -hmm. And any, in any aspect of human endeavor, you know, the Wright brothers crashed a lot of gliders before they, before they flew. And they, 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 you know, almost went bankrupt in their, in their bicycle business because they were distracting themselves, you know, with these, <laughs> this effort to, to build a flying machine, Yeah. you know, you know, it, you know, Steve jobs and Steve Wozniak were not, uh, you know, immediately successful by a long shot with the Apple one. And, but it's going through those things that, that allow you to, to, to learn and to find the things that then lead to those amazing successes that change the world. And I think that most people kind of quail at that, at that wall of resistance. It's almost like, it's almost like opening the door on a, in the middle of a snowstorm and, and, and feeling that, you know, just powerful wind hit you in the face and, and, and the snow and just saying, you know what, I'm going to stay inside today. Mm, that's such a great metaphor. And I think that's what differentiates the disruptors in the world, the, 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 the change agents from, from the rest of folks is because most folks want to close that door and go back inside and sit by the fire. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a great, so a couple of thoughts are coming to my mind. So I'll first talk about children and then I will talk about innovators. So I think one of the things that's so useful about this model or this framework is that it is very simple and visual. And so it makes it very useful and you can have a conversation with a child or someone on your team. And when they say, Oh, this is really hard. I don't want to keep doing this. You can say, well, it is true that you may not be good at this, but right now, all we actually know is that you are at the launch point. We don't have enough data to know that you are not going to be good at this. So what you need to do is persist. Now, the other thing that I think is interesting that you just made me think of is that there is a question because when you're at the launch point of the curve, you're in this ex exploratory phase, you're collecting data, of, does it make sense to be on this particular curve? And because it feels bad a lot of the time, there's a piece of us that says, well, this doesn't feel good. This feels bad. Maybe this is the wrong S curve. Like, I don't know. And sometimes you can't sort out, like it just feels bad. And so we're looking for the right product, you know, S curve person fit. What, what's the difference? And one of the things that I have found is you've got to collect that data, but you also have to ask yourself questions like, does this align with my purpose? And importantly, I think this is where truth tellers come in because when you're at the launch point of the curve and you want to give up, 
people around you that you can trust that are your truth tellers, like in your case, your wife can say to you, you know, I know you feel kind of discouraged right now because you're building this consulting business and it's not going as fast as you want. Maybe that's not true at all. Maybe it went really, really fast, but they're able to say, you know, actually, Bryce, you've got a PhD in organizational, you know, quasi or quote unquote, you know what you're doing. You want to do this. I'm confident you're going to be good at this. Why don't you just go a little bit longer and get a little bit more data and then you can decide whether or not you want to continue to do this. So I think that in teasing out the two of, is this just the wrong curve or it's the right curve, but I've got to persist. True tellers become very important in that, in that process of personal disruption and for an organization as well. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I mean, that's, I mean, this is what we, 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 we do for a living is, is, you know, red team thinking is all about telling the truth and finding ways oh. to hear the truth as a leader. So oh. it's, yeah, there we go. So exactly. So, so, so you don't need red tell, you don't need truth tellers. You need red team tellers. Same difference, you know, and, and, uh, you know, amen to that. I mean, it's, it's, if it, you know, you need to have those people because you, 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 Boy, there's so much I want to I want to talk about that you just mentioned there, Whitney. So the first thing is that I'd say is it's an important thing too, because there's a lot of people in this world who are who are failing, who are convinced that if they just if they just keep at it, you know, they're going to get it, and then and they don't. And that's not what I, I think either of us are advocating here no. by a long shot. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that what I've seen in my own trajectory and what I've seen with clients as well is there's a difference between slogging and failing. Mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're slogging, you, you're having successes, but, it, it, but you may also be then like facing a headwind. Like and you're taking two steps forward and one step back is how I kind of think of it. Because the and snow it, is blasting in your face. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it's exhausting at times and it's discouraging at times. But the point is that things are working. And if nothing's working, then that's the learning there. You're not doing the right thing. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, again, I'll, I'll pick one of the, the examples that I just used, you know, yeah, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak didn't sell a lot of Apple Ones, but they sold some. And, they, and people who were in the computer space, who were in this space of, of visualizing this future, which there was going to be a computer on everyone's desk, saw that they had something special. And that gave them enough validation, enough feedback to recognize that they, it was worth slogging mm -hmm. to get to the point that they could develop the Apple II. And, and so there's a lot of people who out there, out there, I think who, who, you know, frankly don't have a good idea and are just, you know, kind of, you know, um, throwing good money after bad or, or, or whatever, whatever you want to call it, who need to recognize that if you're not getting any positive feedback from your right. experiments, then, then, then you're doing your, you probably should be doing something else. The other, the other thing that I would say though, too, um, going to your example is that um it is sometimes success can be just as terrifying as failure when you're mm -hmm. when you're at that point in the s curve mm -hmm. you know in my in my own case when i quit journalism and started started teaching people how to how to implement alan's business plan review process and working together philosophy which is what i did initially excuse me 
I mean, my the first month I was doing it, I made more than I'd made in the previous six months as a journalist. Oh, and and, and so you were actually getting a lot of positive data. I was, but it was still terrifying mm-hmm. because because I didn't know. I didn't know, like, is this just, you know, an aberration? Is this, you know, is this going to last? Is this, you know, when, when you, when you've spent 20 years getting a paycheck every two weeks and have health insurance and all this stuff, that's, that's a nice kind of like stability that you have underneath you. Nice safety net. It may be artificial. You know, I think a lot of people learned during the global financial crisis and learned again during COVID that those safety nets can disappear really quickly. Um, but, but it at least allows you to trick your brain into thinking that you, you don't have to worry about these things where you can be making a whole lot of money, but if it's, if you don't know that it's going to continue, right, it can still feel really unsettling, mm-hmm. um, if you're not mm-hmm. used to it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I, I, that goes back to the hard work aspect of this is that I think entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is not. You know, and it's, you know, it's also, you know, it goes back to what I, I love this quote that I've heard Mark Cuban say several times. An entrepreneur is someone who works 80 hours a week so they don't have to work 40 hours a week for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, <sighs> you're laughing because you know it's true. Oh, I know it's true. <laughs> and you've lived it. True. Yeah. We all have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I think that even success can be difficult. Mm-hmm in these times because it's different. And, you know, one yeah. of the things that I think is key to, to, to key to being able to disrupt yourself is being comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah. You know, what's that's bringing up for me is that you, you had asked the question earlier about um, how do you disrupt yourself? And we have a, a seven point framework of personal disruption. And the very first tenant of that is to take the right kinds of risks. And I speak specifically about taking on market versus competitive risk. And what we know from the theory of disruption is that when you take on market risk, meaning you play where no one else is playing, your odds of success are six times higher and the revenue opportunity 20 times greater. So this is from the innovator's dilemma. So what's interesting about the difference between market and competitive risk is that you look at market risk and you say, well, market risk, you're more likely to be successful. The odds of success are six times higher. But because you're playing where no one else is playing, you're doing, you're innovating, you're doing something new, it actually feels more risky. And so that's how that, that's where this theory can be very useful for us as we're thinking about innovating and doing something new is to say to ourselves, okay, it's going to be less risky if I play where no one else is playing, but it's going to feel more risky and I'm going to want to do what everybody else is doing. But by knowing that, having that data or that that fact at my disposal, I'm going to be able to talk myself through this place that feels really uncomfortable. It's such an important thing. I mean, you know, people who who come, I mean, this is not what I do professionally, but, you know, friends and stuff who, who've, who've seen some of the success we've had, and I'm sure you get this all the time too, will come and ask me, you know, well, what do you, I've got this great idea. What do you think about this? And nine times out of 10, my reaction is, well, it is a great idea. That's why there's three other people doing it. Yeah. And, you know, I had this conversation with a, with a friend of mine a couple of years ago who was like, I've got this brilliant idea. I want to do this. And I'm like, but there's three other people who are doing this, who've been doing this successfully mm-hmm. for years. And, and, and so what are you going to do differently? Right. If you're not doing anything radically different, then, then you have no hope of success because you're, you're going to always be playing catch up with them. 
And it's hard because people think like, well, it's a good idea though. But it you, is. You've hit the nail on the head. It, it's not good enough to have a good idea. It has to be a good idea that isn't duplicating what someone else is already doing well. Right. And, and leverages what you do uniquely well. So what you do right. idiosyncratically well. So no one else is doing it. And you're, you've got a competitive advantage because of your unique set of skills that you bring to this idea. And I think this is so important because again, this goes back to the thing is I don't think either of us are advocating that people just, just quit their day job and do, and follow their no. bless with, you know, blindly it, you have to, this is why Silicon, one of the mantras of Silicon Valley is fail fast, you know, is, is you have to set yourself up to test, to see if there's right. a, a, a market for what you, what you want to do for your idea. And, and by the way, this doesn't have to be in, in the marketplace with a capital M. You can disrupt yourself in your job even by, by doing something different than, than your peers are doing. And you can test and learn in that environment too, right? You can, you can test to see if there's different yep. ways of doing things in your organization that are going to give you an advantage over people at the same level of you. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I remember um, I had interviewed one of my friends and and also colleagues. Um, his name is Daryl Rigby, and he he was at Bain, and uh, he would find himself getting you know to the top of his S curve. That's my language, not his. And like, it's time for me to do something new. And before he'd go and look somewhere else, he'd ask himself, "Well, how can I make this the best job I've ever had?" And so he would go to people and say, well, why don't we try this or why don't we try that? And let's just run an experiment. We'll do it for six months. If it doesn't go, you know, go well, I'll go back to doing what I was doing or what you'd like me to do. Well, that was over 40, four zero years ago. So wow. started his career at Bain. He's still at Bain because he did that over and over again and he disrupted himself, but he got people to buy into his doing an experiment. I love that. Mm. I love that. Great stuff. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, Whitney. You've given me a lot to think about. I'm sure that, that you've given a lot for our listeners and viewers to think about as well. What's one final piece of advice that you'd, you'd leave people with? Oh, my final piece of advice? I would say that sometimes when you're disrupting yourself, the PE ratio, the puke to excitement ratio... <laughs> <laughs> it's so uncomfortably high, you're going to feel like you're on a thrill ride to zero. But here's what you need to know about disruption. Sometimes it's going to feel scary. Sometimes it's going to feel lonely. But when you feel that way, when you're playing where no one else is playing, it probably means that you are on the right path. I love that. Couldn't agree more, Whitney. Thank you so much. We'll put links to, to all of your, your, your books and your website in the show notes. People check out what Whitney has to, is the, we just scratched the surface of Whitney's wisdom here. So we'll have to have you back on again in the future, but thank you so much for joining us today, Whitney. Bryce, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.